0: You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as Inforum SF. Hello and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Lena Jennings and I'm an equity strategist at Google, as well as a Cinnamon Girl Inc. Mentor. I am pleased to be in conversation with feminist writer Mina Salami. And Mina is the founder of the award winning blog, Miss Afropolitan, and the author of a new book, Sensuous Knowledge. So, we asked students from around the country to submit video questions for Mina today, and we'll get to a few of those at the end of the program. And so, if you would like to ask us a question, um, add them to the chat or in the comment section, and we will definitely try to get to them if we have time. So without further ado, let's get started. Thank
1: you so much for joining us today, Mina. Thank you so much, Lina, and thank you to Cinnamon Girl and to Commonwealth Club for for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Yes, we are happy to have you.
0: So let's dive right on in. Um, We have some exciting content to talk about and we have lots of good questions from students around the country that we wanna make sure we get to. And so just to start off, we know that you are proficient in five languages. You have lived in Nigeria, Sweden, Spain, New York, and you're currently in London. And so my question for you is how has this global perspective influenced your writing and view on feminism?
1: Uh, very much, but not not intentionally, you could say um very it, it has influenced my feminism in a great to a great extent and in different ways. so growing up in Nigeria, um I was witness to a particular type of society and a particular type of patriarchy that was very much enmeshed with um colonialism because Nigeria had been colonized for a century by the British. Um, And so there was this mix of what we could say uh, indigenous patriarchy with the kind of colonizer patriarchy. Um, And then I moved to to Sweden and later to to New York and I'm now in London and having lived in Spain. And in each country, um, I think what is really interesting is that uh, the way that the patriarchal education works is, is slightly different But also it's fascinating and troubling um, that in each country that there is this this education and that women in all parts of the world are being um, educated and indoctrinated to see themselves as of lesser value than men. Um, But I think seeing... How this plays out in so many different parts of the world, and even in, in, in Sweden, which um, is one of the most egalitarian countries in the world when it comes to gender, um, although perhaps not when it comes to race, or definitely not when it comes to race, unfortunately. Um, but even in that, even in Sweden, um, there were still so many obstacles that women were were fighting against. Um, so, yeah, it it, is, it informs my feminism very much in the sense that I am starkly aware of the need for feminism because I have seen that this problem exists everywhere.
0: Yeah, and kind of based off of your experiences in these five different countries that you have lived in, what would you say has been like the through line of the biggest need or the biggest kind of indoctrination that you've seen in these drastically different countries but with the same problem?
1: Definitely that women are uh, robbed of our power. Um, So in each of these societies and everywhere in the world, uh, women are being indoctrinated into a male way of thinking, and we're being told that we cannot do certain things. Um, So we don't feel that we have the power to Um, shape our lives the way that we might want to shape them or to enter politics or to shape society or to take particular roles within the family and household. Um, Everywhere, we are being robbed of of power um, in ways that are so subtle that we sometimes don't even notice it. And of course, the thing about power is that it is also the source of something that is equally fundamental in life, which is is joy. and if you don't feel empowered to make decisions that are rooted in in your own preferences, and to witness and live in a society that thinks that shapes itself around your needs as much as it does around the needs of the other half of the population, then it's very difficult to pursue um, joy or power, for that matter, because you you feel as though you're um, Constantly in a in a state of kind of double consciousness. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So that's interesting. So I'm gonna kind of skip around since you already brought start up the topic. <laughs> no, <note. laughs> right. So let's turn on the light now. So you you brought up the topic of joy, and I think joy is one of the things where, despite all of the things that we as women, especially women of color, go through, it is so easy for us to not possess joy. It's so easy for us to be upset about our inequities, upset about the things that bring us ten steps back and upset about all of these other external factors that are outside of our control. But what is so powerful about joy and possessing it and kind of living our lives on our own terms and daring greatly enough to possess the joy possess the joy to really just go against the grain and that's this political act of resistance is to possess that joy.
1: Yeah, um so what joy means, and when I talk about joy in sensuous knowledge in my book, um I'm referring to it as something that is political and um and quite intentional, so it's a kind of joy as i I say in the book that it sensuous knowledge is kind of the baby if you had married joy and rage together um so this is a kind of joy that comes from having seen. Uh, that you live in an in an ugly society which is trying to diminish your value whether it is because you're female or because you're a person of color um, or you're from a different class whatever it might be Um, you have identified that something the system at large is trying to diminish your value and so you become intentional about this joy Um, and in a sense in that sense it is Quite different from the related term happiness, which um, which is a lovely feeling, but that is something that that is far less intentional. So you can just feel that when you're when you're doing something you love, dancing, etc. Um, but with this kind of intentional joy, um, what you then begin to see is that in a patriarchal, uh, Eurocentric, white supremacist society, um, what happens is that women and people of color are not really able to to embody the full range of human emotion. So for example, um, just such a thing as uh, aggressiveness even, which is not necessarily a positive emotion, but girls are taught from such an early age that they, they are not allowed to feel that, that that is something that is manly. But of course, every human being feels angry and aggressive at times. And so basically, this multiplied with so many different emotions. And what then happens is that you're, you're starting to subdue yourself, you're starting to block yourself from behaving in certain ways. And that, of course, becomes an obstacle to joy.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that you kind of brought up these different spectrum of emotions. And one of them is there's so many ways that we put these positive and negative connotations on emotions that are just Emotions. They're neutral feelings, but feeling angry is bad. Feeling assertive is a bad emotion. Feeling rage is a bad emotion. But all of these things, kind of coupled with being a woman, it's like, no, 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 don't do, don't be these things. Like, be a good girl, be nice, be sweet, be kind, be considerate. But then the messages that men are getting are kind of go after the things that you want. Like, Tackle the world head on. Go forth. Set the world on fire. Do whatever it is that you want. But women always have to be kind, polite, considerate, generous.
1: And what's and so, so mad about that is that we're simultaneously living in a world where women have so much reason to be mad about things, right? Um, but but we have this huge uh, sense of obstacle in in expressing our anger. It's it's really a big problem. Yes, no, and, and so totally. therefore there is there can be. Uh, uh joy to connect the two emotions if if you have felt for your entire life that you have to be a good girl and you have to be nice and polite and you can't express your anger in whichever way you express anger because that's also something that's very individual but then if you become intentional about your joy um expressing anger can become something that actually makes you feel joy because it's it's you know it can be a unique experience in sense. a release yeah
0: yeah I love that. So I want to get into the book. Um, There's so much good content in the book. And I want to make sure that we kind of talk about all that you have kind of in your book. So Sensuous Knowledge, it speaks about the intellectual brain, as well as the emotional and intuitive brain. And so can you break down those different parts of the brain? And then what does it mean to chat? Like, what does that mean in terms of knowledge is how we how we think about it today?
1: Great question. Um, so yeah, the way the, the book works is that I um, I first develop this concept that I refer to as sensuous knowledge, and I then apply sensuous knowledge to a range of different topics, from beauty to power to womanhood, etc. And um, in brief, sensuous knowledge is a it's a it's a combining a synthesizing of uh, as you said intelligence of the brain like of of, of rational thinking and logic um, with emotional intelligence and the way that i figure uh, one must do that because i think it's important that we do that because what the the systems the oppressive systems that we've briefly spoken about such as patriarchy and white supremacy what they do is that they create these fragmentations in our mind so we think that we have to be either rational or emotional or that, but that is not how human beings uh, are. You know, we are uh, holistic beings. And so I found that it is important for us to integrate these two ways of knowing. And the way that I uh, think we do that is by, Mixing and interweaving things like science and technology, but also with arts and mythology and poetry and music um, and the natural world, seeking to to find knowledge from from trees and you know rivers, etc. Um, and so, yeah. So I, I I developed this concept and then I uh, apply it on these these different topics.
0: Yeah, and how does that challenge our limited knowledge of? knowledge? How does that challenge our limited like, viewpoint of how we view knowledge kind of traditionally today?
1: Well, what it does is that it, um, because another thing that is really, or three things that are very central to sensuous knowledge is that it is um, a woman-centered paradigm and it is Africa-centered and it is firmly rooted in Black feminist theory. Um, and this is important then because when you Uh, Then look at a concept like beauty, for instance, Mm -hmm. Um, with this prism of sensuous knowledge that is embodying all of these ideas that I've just spoken about and that is woman centered and Africa centered, etc. If you as a person of African heritage, as a woman of African heritage, uh, look at it with yourself at the center, beauty suddenly means and can be something very different to what, what I call Euro-patriarchal knowledge, which is yeah. what I contrast, the sensuous knowledge, what it tells us about beauty. Um, and this applies to pretty much every single universal concept. We have been looking at concepts through the eyes, through through male and white eyes, so to speak. And it's not that those eyes have only produced bad things or ugly things. I want to be clear about that. Like there's a lot of very valuable knowledge in the world that was created by men and white people and so on and right. so forth, right. right? But there's something about having to send put yourself at the center in knowledge production that is really political and transformative. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also a big part of that is
0: telling our own stories and uh, having us be our own historians as opposed to having The other or the opposing side or the differing side kind of tell our stories for us or tell the story for the entire world when they, again, come from their limited knowledge and experience. But we have a completely different set of experience just based off of our cultural differences, based off of our spatial differences and how we've grown up and how we were upraised in our upbringing
1: absolutely and and this isn't coincidental because we quite often can feel that oh we have to become our own historians um and become challenged in becoming our own historians because it isn't simple and that has to be constantly articulated that becoming our own historians is an act of resistance because mm-hmm. we are living in societies where our our governments our Popular culture, our families, um very often, are not wanting us to be our own historians and once you get that again, going back to this thing about like having a kind of moment of confrontation then you then, then you can confront that system more easily yeah. because you you see that it's this is not supposed to be an easy task like i can 't just tell my story because somebody is going to have an issue with it, um, and that kind of uh, motivates you a little bit more if, if you want freedom, right?
0: Right. Definitely. No, telling your story is definitely a route to freedom and a means to freedom and not just kind of, I think it's your own personal freedom where if you kind of get the courage and you dare greatly enough to own your story, to own your voice and to use your voice for good and to counteract kind of the larger, topic and the larger narratives of this world, it's one of those things where it's terrifying, but it's incredibly liberating to do so, to own your story, to broadcast it and
1: use your experiences and your problem as this platform. Exactly. It's very liberating on a a personal level, just as you say, and then it is also very Liberatory, as um, Bill hooks, the feminist theorist, whom I cite a lot in my book, um, she might use that word. She uses that concept, liberatory, um, yeah. for uh, all of us at large. And by us, I mean those of us who have been silenced, whose voices mm-hmm. have been suppressed. Um, because when we, uh, when we speak our truth and tell our own story, we are gifting. Uh, each other, right? Because then if I do that, then you feel like, oh, I can do that too and vice versa, right? So it's a a reciprocal act of resistance, you could say.
0: Yeah, it is one of those where we feed off one another to empower someone else to do it. So in that same vein um, about freedom and liberation, you write in your book, you can hang decorations in the master's home. You can spray slogans about freedom on its walls. You can create altars of equality in its gardens, but the master's house will still be a prison for everyone, but the master himself. Can you expand on this a little bit and talk about the price that we all pay for living in the master's house? And what is the modern day
1: master's house that we live in today? Right. um, So that part of the book was uh, discussing Uh, a very famous quote by the Black feminist author, Audre Lorde, and she says that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And um, for a very long time, we, uh, and by we, I mean people, uh, feminists, but also anybody who is in kind of wanting to end oppression of any sort, um, have been focusing on what are the master's tools that will not... um, Break down the master's house, um, but what I'm suggesting in that section is that if we turn our attention to the master's house, then we the tools they don't become redundant. But it's actually more important to realize that um, the master's house is not a place that we want to be, and we don't want to see it at the table at the master's house, um, because as in the in the past, as in I said said in the passage you read. Um, it is always going to be a place that favors the master. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what is that? Um, what is the master's house? It's it's obviously many things and it's it's things that are uh, associated with power. Um, so the master's house can be, you know, if you are in a, in a household where you have a dominant sort of male head of the family, that's an example of the master's house. Um And then, of course, like our our governments, our militaries, things like that. But what my book is really trying to to aim at and to pinpoint most specifically is that the master's house is the knowledge production itself. So um, the kind of the knowledge that we have about things like beauty that I mentioned earlier or power or womanhood These are ideas that have been formulated by the metaphorical master's house. Um, And so until we counter that knowledge production itself, um, then even as we are resisting and doing activist work, we kind of end up going back to the master's house. Um, So so. Uh, the, one of the very big motivations for me in writing the book was that I realized in so many spaces that I inhabit it, within like the black liberationist movement, feminism and so on, that we were so often um like doing really important work, but somehow stuck creating the same kind of hierarchies or formulaic thinking and I realize that this is because the very paradigm of knowledge um, and ideas with which we do this work. So, for instance, if you think about power, how is power defined? You know, power is defined right. by large in in ways that fit a patriarchal, white supremacist society. It's defined as something that is authoritarian and dominant and violent. And so, if we within a movement are trying to reshape power, but we don't actually have we haven't redefined power itself. We just kind of yeah. end up reproducing the same problems. Um, so, so the master's house is ultimately the master's way of knowing and thinking.
0: And so, to break free of the master's house, some recommendations that I want that I want to clarify and I want to make sure that I'm catching are: is it coming up with our own definitions of our systems are the way in which we do and go about things or is it bringing awareness to kind of what is and connecting the divide between what is and where we want it to be? What, like, what are the some of the first steps of that breaking free from the master's house and our minds and our environments. But I think it might just be easier of just like in our own day-to-day lives, like how can we ourselves break free from the master's house and way of thinking?
1: I really love that question because you've, you've, answered it almost because it is that um fact that if you once you have awareness of mm-hmm. how something is how ugly something is how it is suppressing you etc um then you kind of it's like an innate automatic reaction to want to reimagine it um yeah. so the two go hand in hand and you can't separate them but i i would say that awareness probably comes first and because then it's just so automatic that you start reimagining, recreating new language. I mean the whole feminist movement and the civil rights movements and Pan-Africanism, these are actual, this is exactly what happened. People became aware of a particular type of injustice and mm-hmm. automatically started to form movements along wanting something different. Um, yeah. But in terms of like in our in our daily lives and how we can um how we how we might come to that, those kinds of places of awareness where something changes and how we, how we know. Um, I guess the way that sensuous knowledge, um, the concept in the book contributes to that is by whatever it is that we are experiencing life, you know, whether it's uh, like what's going on now with, with COVID or something in our personal lives or the kind of work that we're doing. Um, What sensuous knowledge is about is really, uh bringing all of those different facets and parts of life that I mentioned earlier. So if we looked at um, a, a situation in our in our work um, relationships, and then we looked at it not only with our rational brains, but also with our emotional intelligence, um, mm-hmm. when we're when we're facing a challenge, a challenge of some sort, it is kind of bringing this holistic approach to so- solving it. So looking at the, the factual, the scientific, but also the poetic, um, the feminine, the spiritual, uh, you know, so really an um, embodied and holistic approach. And so when we do that more consciously, awareness, again, it's, it can it can almost happen automatically because you're starting to look at a thing Wholly, rather than in that kind of fragmented Euro patriarchal way. Right. Yes,
0: definitely. And you kind of hinted on it earlier. And how I think of it is this element of exposure, and how if we're exposed to different environments, different things, and different settings and ways of life, we see how broken our own mindsets and how broken our own systems are. And I'm an avid travel and traveler, and there's this quote um, that says, we travel because distance and difference are the secret tonic to creativity. When we get home, home is still the same, but something in our minds has changed, and that changes everything. And that's the same thing with this exposure to kind of patriarchy and the master's house. When we leave that environment, we see a whole new way of life, a whole new way of how things are created and done, and... That doesn't change our home. That doesn't change our environment or our own master's house, but that changes our mind and how we view things and how we look at things. And then that is kind of a catalyst to get us thinking about how can we break the system? How can we break down these barriers? So I love that distinction. And, and with that, let's gonna we're going to roll on to some of our student questions. We have a few video submissions. And so let's just hear our first one.
1: Hi, Nina. My name is Brianna Travis from Berkeley High School. I'm a cinnamon girl. And my question to you is, have you always been a good student in school? Also, did you struggle in school? And um, what messages were you told when you were younger to stay empowered and inspired? Thank you. Lovely question, Um, to which I have uh, like a twofold answer. I was both good at school. And then I was a bit of a troublemaker later in school. Um, And I think this had something to do with the different environments. I, so I I did like my primary and part of my secondary school, as we call it um, in Nigeria. Uh, I think that's middle school in the U S and you know there was this was a really strict environment, so you had to be on your best behavior um, but it was also uh, you know we often think that that is the better way of schooling, but it was quite limiting in terms of you know you weren't really allowed to to critically question uh, your teachers um, it was it was really quite militant, you could say um, and then when I continued schooling in Sweden, which you know my first few weeks in my Swedish school one of the I remember one of my classmates throwing a chair at a teacher because he had upset him and this was such a huge culture shock for me but um eventually it did it did give me that gift of being able to question more and perhaps I did that like even too much to the extent that I became a little bit troublesome but um yeah uh and as uh, what was the second question? In like empower empowering messages, I mean the 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 very m- most important and fundamental one has was always from my mother. Um, uh, my mom always has said to me that focus on your joy actually um, or happiness and make decisions. Whenever you have to make a difficult decision, uh, choose the one that will b- bring you closest to your joy. Um, and that is something that I, I am very grateful that she planted into me and that I always like to, to tell young women to, to bear in mind as well, um, because especially in the world that we live in today, there are just so many different choices. Um, and simultaneously, the world is getting, uh, it's becoming uglier in many ways, it's becoming more corrupt divisions are growing. It's a harsh world for a young Black woman to to step into. Um, And so protecting your joy and your sense of self and and knowing that the choices that you can make, because you always can make a choice, uh, that is something that nobody can ever take away from you. Even if they were to throw you into a prison cell, you still have the choice of whether you're going to sit in the left corner or the right corner you can always make a choice um and yeah so that's something that i really uh like to impart to young women that be aware on the one hand that the world can be really challenging um but on the other hand there's a great uh, source of joy and beauty in knowing that you are the only person who can decide for you what you're going to do and how you're going to behave and who you're going to become
0: i love that choose joy always you're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. We have a few more questions. Let's get the next one going. Hi, Mina. As a young person, we heard, we hear how knowledge is power of all the time.
1: Can you talk about the history of this phrase and its true intentions and its purpose? Ah. Uh. That's an interesting question, because there is a really interesting story behind this phrase, knowledge is power, which is a, you know, it's an empowering phrase. It's one that uh, the civil rights activists especially used. And so we use that term in Black and African heritage communities uh, all around the world. Um, and we should, because knowledge is power. Um, but it is important. Important to think about again um, what knowledge all knowledge is not power there is um, as I say in the book Euro-patriarchal knowledge um, can be very disempowering um, and so it is therefore quite interesting that that phrase knowledge is power was actually coined by uh, one of the most like, key Europatriarchal thinkers Francis Bacon um, and he meant it not in the way that we do when we say it, he meant it literally. So he meant that if we know about um, like women, this is, this is something I'm making up. Bacon might not have used this particular example, but if we know that women have secret societies, then we can use that against them to acquire power. Um, if we know that nature operates in a certain way, then we can um, dominate nature. Uh, If we know things about indigenous communities, then we can use that against them. So he meant that knowledge was literal. And again, he also meant power in that way that is uh, defined as dominance and violence and authority, which is not how I think we should define power. Um, So it's a it's a very interesting phrase in that sense.
0: Mm, That was a great question. Okay, so let's roll on to the next one. Hi, Mina. Um, my name is Ayana Sareth, and I am 18 years old. And my question is, if you could give a young girl
1: two or three thoughts to live by, what would they be? Ayana, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, so I've been going on a lot about joy. So you know that I'm going to say um, uh-huh. that you should keep that in mind and, and keep it in mind as something that is a political act, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, also to be, um, to be true to yourselves. Um, always try to understand what your own truth about something is. Try to discover for yourself. So don't just take other people's word for things that are important to you. If somebody says that this is how, um, black people are or this is what such and such music is about or anything um even if somebody says this is what mina salami's book centrist knowledge is about you know you don't know that until you discover for yourself so have that approach in life with everything that that you decide um and thirdly i'm gonna say um that be be light um be lighthearted as much as you can. Um, and this goes back to what we were talking about and how the world is such a challenging place and becoming even more so. I mean, we're right now in this dreadful lockdown and we don't really know what the future looks like. Um, we have to protect our sort of core uh, human human nature and human right to to just, keep a light mind um, and not become too burdened by, by problems that you haven't created. And that is not to say that, you know, be unaware or, or uninformed, but um, but don't allow these things, all of the very difficult challenges, all of the negative messages about Black people, about women, about this, that, and the other, um, don't allow those things to, to penetrate your hearts and your souls and your minds. Um, but keep them, let them bounce off you. That's what I mean by, by be light.
0: My mom has always told me to protect my peace and like accept the things that you cannot control, but above all else, protect your peace.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant.
0: Let, let's roll to the next question. Hello, my name is Madison Harvey. I'm 16 years old. And when questioning sexism and racism, we are often told that we are militant, radical, angry, or even sensitive. And I wanted to know what can we do about these microaggressions. Thank you. Mm, What a question.
1: Yeah, um, I think that relates a little bit to what I was just saying. It's, um, you know, we have to... You see, the thing about your patriarchal knowledge is that it's trying to make it seem as though we shouldn't be questioning these things, as though we live, like, as though it's normal to have our voices silenced and to face so many structural oppressions. We see, you know, larger amounts of, of black people dying at the moment because of COVID. There's all kinds of injustices as we, as we are all too aware of because they're evident. And yet um, it is, you know, it is a culture which makes us feel as though we're being, militant and angry, like this angry black woman trope whenever we talk about it. So um, one thing that I think is really important and that I hope that I um, am able to convey myself when I speak is that um, that these are issues that are actually very logical and rational um, and again, like embedded in emotional intelligence. And when you speak to people about racism or sexism or classism, you um, Adopt a tone of like it being evident, uh, and then you sort of don't even get that angry necessarily because you're you're just sticking to the facts. This is not it, it's not a question that is up for debate, right? Like there is racism, there is sex. These are real problems, and we are going to speak about them until they no longer are real problems. Um, and and you know it's just a, a very sort of level headed approach that I think works the best with these conversations which um, I also just want to add that uh, if you feel angry about something then express that it's it's completely allowed and okay and you know if I have one message is that nobody should tell you that you are not allowed to express the whole range of emotions that you feel Um, so go ahead and talk about the things that you care about um, in whatever way you feel is the best way.
0: That's it. And they're no good or bad emotions. They're just emotions and they're they're your experiences. Yes. So we have one more student video question and then we will start wrapping up. Where did the time go? So fast. Hi, my name is Jayla, I'm class of 2022 at USC and I was just wondering, so in your book you reference Lauren Hill a couple of times and you guys both talk about the importance of refraining from submitting your will and so I was just wondering if you could speak more on that and just explain kind of why it's so important for young girls in particular to avoid doing this.
1: Thank you. Wow, um, I love that question submitting your will. Yeah. Um, I I think it's, you know, it's already there in the statement. Um, It it feels like a, a kind of, if we can invent a term, microviolence, because microaggression means something different, but, you know, to, because will is such a, it's such a powerful word, you know, it's, it's like the thing that, Makes you alive. Um, you know, it's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's it's your will to, to get up and go about with your day, whatever you have planned. And so when you put the word submit in front of it, it's a microviolent. You can instantly see how wrong that is. Um, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, sometimes you have to, you have to. Negotiate your will. Like we can't do everything that we want. There are always going to be challenges for everyone in this world. Um, but yeah, um, so when you, if you can see that the the words don't fit together nicely, and that there is a microviolence, then you will start to see that a little bit more. Maybe whenever such an action is about to happen, and then you can step out of it. So if you're in a situation where um, you have said, oh, I would like to do X, Y, Z. And somebody says, no, you're not allowed to do that because X, Y, Z. And you go, if you're about to go, well, okay. You can recognize that as I am submitting my will. And then it's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. And you can sort of take a step back a little bit. I know these are like difficult things and we don't, uh, you know, nobody always has that awareness. But I guess what I want to say is, think about the the words, you know, Be be curious about these things and think about changing, reimagining how these things can work in your mind, because then the action follows more easily.
0: And that kind of goes back to what you said earlier about using, having your own definitions of these things and finding out that knowledge for yourself and kind of Stating your own fact as a fact as opposed to just accepting it from someone else. And my mom has always told me that a no does not always mean no, except when it comes to what she says.
1: <laughs> all mom's <laughs> no's are always no's. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it is an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers the following question So, Nina, what is your 60 second idea to change
1: the world? Mm, my 60 second idea to change the world is to encourage more curiosity in people um, So be more curious be more curious about others why they are the way they are, who they are, etc be more curious about the natural world, about animals, about trees and seas etc and also be more curious about yourself, um, why you make the choices that you make who has, you know, what has influenced the choices that you make? Um, and the reason this is my 60 second idea is because curiosity breeds awareness. And the more aware we become, the more present we become. And the more present we become, that's the only way that we can change the present.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that. Being present is the only way we can change the present. So important. So, Mina, can you just tell all of our viewers where we can buy your book and how to best follow your work?
1: Of course. Um, so, I have got a blog, it's misafropolitan.com. Um, and my social media handles are all at misafropolitan on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I have hyperlinks there for sensuous knowledge, but you can also just Google sensuous knowledge and you'll get links for where to buy it.
0: Okay. Well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, at Miss Afropolitan and you can get linked out to all of her books and follow her content on social media. So thank you to Mina Salami for joining us today at Inform in the Commonwealth Club. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the, the Commonwealth Club efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash give. And I'm Lena Jennings. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And stay safe, everyone.